A reading from 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, so that he may be struck down and die. The word of the Lord. We will read responsively by the half verse, as indicated by the asterisk, Psalm 14. Fools say in their heart, there is no God. The Lord looks down from heaven upon us all. Everyone has proved faithless. All alike have turned bad. Have they no knowledge, all those evildoers? See how they tremble with fear? Their aim is to confound the plans of the afflicted. 
Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come out of Zion. A reading from Ephesians. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? And Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated.
There's a really large piece of art in the hall on your way in. It's one of these, these big hanging faces. Uh, maybe you've seen it. It's, it's covered with little coins. And uh, we got to hear when the artist Lyudmila set this up, you know, her work she doesn't call icons. Icons refer to these traditional images here that have that gold leaf, which is meant to represent God's light all around them. Um, she's inspired by them in her work, um, but she doesn't call them icons. They're reactions to icons. This piece has two really large eyes. Icons always have... Um, sort of exceptionally large eyes. Traditionally, it's the understanding the eyes are the gateway to the soul, and so the icons are really meant to be God looking through you, looking into you. The piece with the money was Ludmilla's understanding, it was her idea to represent greed. Here are God's eyes and all of this money and it was a commentary on, in God's name, taking from people as a church, as an institution, as a government, as a society, ways we do that individually. She called the peace greed. And in that sense, those eyes maybe are judging. She was giving a tour one day, and she hadn't described the peace yet, hadn't named it. And on the tour was a Russian Orthodox priest. And before she could say her vision for the peace, he said, what an incredible tribute to generosity. This represents all those widows in Russia during the former Soviet Union who gave a pittance, the kopecks that they had, to keep the church operating. He thought the peace was called generosity. And he thought those eyes were God's eyes of gratitude. It's interesting to hear that story from her, how different people approach the art that she made. I think it's probably one of the reasons she tries really hard not to tell you what the work means, but allow it to have a meaning for you. This is sort of an interesting, interesting piece. The money on that piece is essentially worthless. Um, if, you, if you went to Italy before the EU, it's like a lira. <laughs> um, I sort of remember, you know, 10,000 lira is a dollar. And so it's like a lira, <laughs> a rupee, a, a, a peso 20 years ago. That piece, I want to suggest to you, might be the hinge between our readings today that are just... They seem really discordant. Right, so the gospel story is really, really one of these great stories. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that Jesus does in all four gospels. It's the only one. And in John, uh, it's the only one that has a little boy offer stuff. And, and sure enough, this little boy does what children are so great at, right? He doesn't realize that his help won't solve the problem. <laughs> he... he he takes these little loaves, like, imagine he's got five Ritz crackers. He offers his five crackers to 5,000 men. He, the, the word in Greek says 5,000 men. It doesn't include women and children. So there's at least 5,001 people there. He's the one kid, at least. He offers his little fish. Please don't think he's gone marlin fishing. 
think of Brim. He, he, he's got a Lunchable. And, and he offers that in, in sort of, I mean, we don't know his motive, but I just think it's helpful to think that, you know, children can be ridiculously generous, you know? He offers it up. And, and, and sure enough, interestingly, um, Andrew is not so cynical. I mean, I guess he says, you know, what good is all this going to do with 5,000 people? But he thinks it's worthy enough to mention, hey, somebody's offered something. Somebody's been foolishly generous. And sure enough in the story, what do you know? A little bit goes a really long way. God's able to nourish people at an impossible magnitude with just really a very immature willingness. Seems like life is full of those moments, doesn't it? And that it can increasingly be full of those moments that God can do more than we can ask or imagine. You know, I think back in my life, I have these opportunities, I think, to go back over and think about moments where people who didn't even know what they were doing for me were doing these incredible things. I don't even know how to thank them. Sometimes I'm not even sure who they were, but I know what they did. I know how it was nourishing, and that sure seems to be the power of God. Jokingly, sometimes, you know, we run out of wafers. <laughs> like there's five people left, and there's two wafers on the plate. So we break them into little pieces. And I always say, you know, God can do a lot with a little. And that's the story, right? You get a little nib of a wafer, and God can fully nourish you with a nib of a wafer. And I think this story is about that. It's about what God can do with our willingness, not with our efficacy. It's about God's efficacy and not ours. And then there's this other story that I find extremely troubling, and I hope you do too. It's about greed, which I think is the opposite of generosity. And there's that word in the psalm you could tell the psalm writers had a bad day. <laughs> uh, the psalm writer says, everybody's bad, no one's good at all, nobody, no one does anything good. You know, um, I mean, thank God that's not true. <laughs> but in the middle of that bad day, the psalm writer says, wicked people eat other people like bread. The definition of wickedness is that we consume other people like they're a snack. That's exactly what happens in our first reading. And I want to tell you, I think it's really important to spend just a little bit of time on it because one of the interesting things about greed in my own experience is how much time and resourcefulness and creativity we put into justifying it, whether it's on a big scale or a small scale. I hope you didn't grow up hearing that Bathsheba was trying to seduce David. I did. Then it was her fault, not his. But I want you to consider carefully this reading that actually goes to great lengths to tell you that the king is completely at fault in what he does. 
Not only does he take this woman against her will, he murders her husband to cover it up. And here's how the story does it. The story tells you that at the time of the year when kings go to battle, David, who's the king, has not gone to battle. He is exactly where he should not be. He's on top of his palace, which he built. It wasn't there before. He built taller than all the other homes in the city. The way the other cities worked, all the way the other houses worked, imagine, the flat-roofed homes, they're all one story, and they have a little privacy wall on top. No one can see what their neighbor's doing the next rooftop over until you build a tower and stand on it, and then you can see what everybody's doing. Here's this woman. Her name is Bathsheba, which in Hebrew means perfect daughter. Her father is named Eliam, which means my God's people. She is the perfect daughter of my God's people. She is purifying herself in accordance with Jewish law. She's not taking a bath. She's worshiping God. In the middle of her worship, David sees her forgive me for saying this, but he is hungry and devours her. Now I know we could say, she could have said no. Let's be real people. When the most powerful person in your country takes you, you have no choice. She has no choice. None. To clean up the consequences of what he's done, inconveniently, she becomes pregnant. David tries to bring her husband, Uriah. He's not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. His name means light of God. David brings the light of God back to Jerusalem and says, go lie with your wife. Because if Uriah will do it, no one can blame David. No one will wonder. Please notice that the light of God is more righteous than the king. Uriah says, how could I do that? My brothers are out there in these booths. They can't do this, so no, I won't do what they can't do. And then please notice that David kills the man. The next verse says he then takes Bathsheba into his house to be his wife which I think you just as well read as he takes her to be his possession. At the end of the book of Samuel, we learn something, which is that Uriah was not a random soldier. Uriah was a member of the king's secret service, which means David knew the man. David knew the woman. It's very possible he was looking exactly where he wanted to look, and it's very possible he stayed behind from war to do this. He utterly consumed a woman and her family. He devoured her like a piece of bread. And I grew up hearing that when Bathsheba was up there, she was trying to catch the king's eye. 
She was trying to tempt him, and he just couldn't help himself. I hope you didn't grow up hearing that. But whether you did or you didn't, that narrative is told. And what it does, of course, is it normalizes our greed and says, you did that to me. I mean, after all, we went another step and we said, you know, men just have this sex drive, and if women just didn't tempt us, it wouldn't be a problem. Sort of a bizarre thing to consider, isn't it, right? We also have a drive to go to the bathroom, and we know not to do that publicly. We know there's an appropriate place to do that. There's an appropriate way to do that. We all get thirsty, but I have never seen somebody get up and drink out of the holy water font because we know not to do that, right? We know there's appropriate ways to meet that need. Here is someone who has thrown appropriate out the window because he can't. Because he can't. because he's entitled to it. And what we learned is, well, he might have been kind of guilty. Most dangerous words you can hear as a woman, but she was really asking for it. This is the logic that says women are so attractive, that's why they should wear burqas, instead of saying men can't control themselves and they should wear blinders. You just don't think about that stuff. I don't want to say this is just about women, though. I want to say this is about children, who, by the way, in the Gospel story, were not heroes. They were property, too. And no one much cared about kids. No one wanted to be childlike. Kids were annoyances to be put up with. That's actually why it's really interesting, right, that someone who's so easy to ride off, their generosity is actually the inspirational kind. So interesting that the foreigner, the Hittite, the one who's not Jewish, really, not ethnically anyway, is more righteous than the king. The story, I think, confronts us with this difference between generosity and trust that small things matter, even small attempts matter. And people are there to be consumed. And that when we do something wrong, they had it coming. And they deserved it. And I think this is a struggle, quite frankly, that's important not just at a rights level, but as a pers personal level. You know, I, mean, I don't know that I'm, that I'm over-confessing here, but sometimes when I go to buy things, I think I really deserve that. <laughs> Maybe I do. I don't know. I, I do think it's, it's worth asking, though, right? Is that a way we justify for me, I'll tell you, sometimes I'm greedy and I justify things that I buy. I am. And I think the story says, well, be really careful with that. Be careful. The greed in the Jesus story happens when the people decide they're going to make Jesus king against their will. Did you notice? They decide they're going to do with him what they want instead of what he wants. They're going to take him and make him do what they want. And he defeats that by going away. <laughs> He has to run away so that they didn't consume him like a piece of bread because after all, they don't really care about him. They just care about satisfying their own 
itch in that moment. And this is hard business. There's one other thing in the gospel story, I think, as we consider that whether in our own lives on a small scale, we deal with the difference between greed and generosity frequently, or at the national or world scale, that happens really every day. And how do we respond to it? You notice at the end of this meal, there's leftover pieces of bread, and the disciples pick up the pieces so that not even pieces are lost. Forgive me if this is too weird, but it, it just it seems to me that that's our call as a church in a world in which people get consumed like bread, that we're really there to help pick up the pieces so that nobody is lost. That our job is to say, God, we hope we don't do that, but also we want to help when it's done. I don't know what these stories bring up for you. I I, I don't know if you sometimes struggle between generosity and expectation or gifts and entitlement. I, I don't know. I know I do. I do know that wherever you are, I think the gospel provides us an opportunity to reflect on our lives and say, God, help me to be more generous than entitled. Help me to be foolishly trusting in your ability to help folks out. There's this lovely song that I encountered at the same church that taught me that Bathsheba asked for it. Lovely song, and I mean it. Uh, it, it, It's a contemporary Christian song. I mean, it's 25 years old now, um, by this guy called Ray Bolt, and the song is called Thank You. And, And it's about this guy who goes to heaven, and people come up to him he doesn't even know, and they sort of say, hey, you didn't know back when you taught my Sunday school class or when you supported that missionary. You, you didn't know um, what you were doing, but I found larger life through your gift of small things. And the song sort of says, that's why I'm here today. I'm, I'm here today with God in this larger life because of those little things you gave. Little things. It's really a fine song. I mean, it's a really, it's a fine song, isn't it? Uh, fine, fine sentiment. And maybe one of the biggest little things we do is we help pick up the pieces for each other after, during, a crisis.